1: inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. What can people with chronic illness physically and romantically
2: bring to relationships? We tackle that question and more. It's Monday, March 27th, and this is Love Bites Radio.
3: the winds of change. Every day more of the same home. home. that place that's so far away. But I know I'll get there someday.
2: Welcome to Love fights, fights coming at you from Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Jack Walter And once again, my darling co-host and dear friend Ben Rosenblatt is not joining us today. It is part two of our episode on breakups because of chronic illness and part five in our series on endings. And it's a sort of of out-of-the-box show for us for many reasons. First of all, you might be wondering at that strange little crossover of music. If you've been with Love Bite since the very beginning, since summer of 2015, you might remember that our very first theme song was a cover by Robbie Gill, and uh, the beautiful song you just heard of was a sampling from Robbie's upcoming album that he's currently fundraising for on Kickstarter.com. And we are huge fans of Robbie and the band. Uh, ben and I both take. Romantic interests there because it's always impressive to have a friend who is insanely talented. But we really love the samples coming out for his upcoming double vinyl album that he wants to make, and we really hope that you support it. So, right now, I've just put out a tweet as to where you can find that. I'm going to be tweeting out a lot during this episode, and there is also a full page at lovebitesradio.com that's going to have all of these links and resources to what we're going to be discussing. Basically today, the way this episode is going to work, for new listeners, normally Ben and I are live in the studio with guests either in the studio with us or coming in on the phone, but it's a little hard to do that with people with chronic illness, so I got some people over the phone from the comfort of my own home and quite literally every single time from my bed. And so the sound quality of some of these tracks are not going to be as great as you would be hearing if we were in Bushwick right now with our wonderful engineer Vitor at the helm. Basically, the way this show is going to work is the first half of the show today, I'm bringing on a, another story. Last week, we heard from Jessica, who has POTS, and Rachel, who has interstitial cystitis. And today, we're going to hear from Katrina. Katrina. Now, five years ago, Katrina was living and working in New York City, and she took a group of students to Rwanda. While she was there, she came down with malaria. She didn't know it at the time, and she had taken the malaria vaccine. But when she got home, she was sick for a short period, felt better, but then shortly after, started developing some symptoms that just never went away. Eventually, she moved from New York City back to her parents in Michigan. She kept looking for new doctors and specialists, and eventually was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, which is also called post-exertion malaise syndrome, and myalgic encephalomyelitis. Now, we don't know a lot about ME or CFS, as they're often called. What we do know is that many cases are preceded by a viral infection— You can get a flu, or like Katrina, you can get malaria, or a lot of people get Lyme disease and things like that. And then you just never fully recover. All of a sudden, you are plagued by horrible fatigue, weakness, cognitive dysfunction, and flare-ups of symptoms that you've had before or new ones. You may get headaches, a lot of muscle weakness, pain, vision problems. And right now, there's no treatment. We don't know why this happens in some people and not others, and we don't know how to take it away. So now we're going to hear Katrina's story. She had moved back to Michigan. She had met this man on eHarmony, and she was planning a future with him while she was figuring out if what was going on in her body was chronic or temporary. Here's Katrina.
3: Yeah, when we first started talking, what stood out to me is how easy the laughter came. And for me, where I was going through this time of trying to figure out my life. It we, was just fun to have someone to talk to where the banter came easily. And even as the conversation sort of long came, I just turned 36, so we were both at a place where we were thinking we wanted to be married sometime soon, we wanted to start a family sometime soon. And so there was a sense of, like, dreaming future and hope, even as I was trying to sort out what's going on with my health. How far into dating did you start discussing how you had been feeling physically? It was gradually worked in because I was trying to share with him some of what I had been through, having gone to Africa, but also me just thinking I had an iron issue. And so it wasn't a huge focal point of conversation. I kind of downplayed it, but was also at a point. Yeah, I've been in New York for some time. I think I might go back to California, but I'm open to moving anywhere, um, which he lives in Colorado. So then that kind of put it on the table of do I see myself there? But there were conversations along the way. Even my parents had had lunch with a former ambassador to Rwanda, and he told my parents, "Get your doc." daughter and to see a tropical disease specialist and so even in my search for finding one it just made sense to go back to new york and joey actually has a brother that lives in new york and so we made plans to meet in new york for our first in-person meeting and so that i could also see the doctor there the tropical disease specialist i found did that help you guys sort of get closer that experience of him helping you I would say at that point, it was not necessarily him helping me as it was him rooting for me. We were both kind of in this together now, probably something Africa-related. We just need to find the fix. If we find the fix, we'll be good to go. We can move forward with all our dreams that we've been talking about um, with the potential of me moving to Colorado to join him there and to start life together. So it was more of having someone doing the little things like texting afterwards or someone who was in it with you um, versus trying to navigate my health issues alone. You had mentioned in your emails that you started worrying about the psychological versus physiological possibilities of your condition. Is that something that you brought to the table or that he brought to the table? I was visiting him in Colorado And even though I've been in to see a tropical disease specialist, all my testing came back negative. So I'm wondering if there's nothing showing in my blood work, then I don't know what this is. Like, is this just psychosomatic? Like, And so I wondered, like, is this some sort of PTSD? Yes, I had lost my job, had to move all my possessions into a storage unit in Chelsea, and then Hurricane Sandy hit and lost everything there. I had also shared with him that a relative of mine had accused me of having a mental illness and that my parents were enabling me by allowing me to stay at home. And also my best friend in New York, she had kind of abandoned me at a certain point, too, ghosted me. And and so on paper, if I'm saying, hey, I might be crazy, I don't know if this is psychosomatic, um, I've had other people accuse me of it and distance themselves. I was putting it out there, and I think he was almost saying, like, who am I dealing with? Do I really know who you are? I had also had a lot of more, like, anxiety had surfaced just because it was so maddening not to have a diagnosis. I just didn't know how to somehow express, like, how I was feeling and whatnot um, regarding the symptoms that came and go, which to him it didn't make sense that one day I could maybe go jog a mile or two and the next day have to, like, spend, you know, a significant amount of time just resting How did that contribute to the the involvement? Following that trip, even though we were starting to talk about the possibility of me moving to Colorado and joining him there, he started distancing himself, and we were supposed to have spent another weekend in Michigan together. He kept stalling, on booking a plane ticket, and then started talking about not wanting to spend money on flights to Michigan, that he actually wanted to travel somewhere else. And he started to hint at, In a sense, it felt like you're saying, you're not enough, like, I want someone to go with me on these adventures, someone who's well enough to go with me on these adventures. Suddenly, we had this final conversation that, in a sense, was our breakup. What words were actually used? For me, it's just not there anymore. It's over. He didn't hit on the illness. He didn't really provide a lot of explanation. And... A few months after that, I start seeing him in Facebook photos with this other girl going on all these trips to Brazil, scuba diving in the Florida Keys and all these other places that we had talked about. And I just kept thinking, if only I was healthy enough, I would be the girl with him. Do you want to be that girl with him? At this point, I have come to terms that when you consider the traditional wedding vows through sickness and through health, if he's not able to embrace all of who I am, then we probably weren't the right fit for each other. And it took me some time to realize that, of course, because it wasn't just losing him with the breakup, but a lot of the dreams and hopes I had for my future. was also coming to terms that this illness might be chronic, that there was no fix and that who is going to want to date me when I'm not the active, fit girl who I always was, um, that suddenly I'm not the runner, the snowboarder, the surfer, the rock climber. I'm not well enough to hold a full-time job. I can't earn a whole lot of money given my limited energy. So how do you feel like that is going to change how you date going forward as far as how you put yourself out there with your sense of self-value? How do you look at reframing how you see yourself? There was actually a quote that I was thinking about that I had heard once it's by Max and He says, a leader defines reality. And so even as I've been thinking about who I am and what I have to contribute, to contribute and to offer, I like this idea that I can put my own spin on my reality and just even realizing I have great worth and just my presence. It's about trying to embrace what I can do and what I can, in a sense, bring. And what do you feel like that is now? Someone who is able to contribute to conversation, to have a meal with somebody, to just be there for someone significant are you over not him specifically but do you feel like you are emotionally um over or moved past the experience of the relationship with him and the breakup with him i think for me i have to realize that that's going to come into play into dating that my illness my health issues my fatigue may keep some men away, and if that's the case with somebody, then they're not the right guy for me. And just to accept that, you know, that I don't have to have someone think that I'm perfect because I'm not. Um, but rather, I can embrace who I am and the gifts that I still have, whether that be writing or playing guitar and things that I can still do that I still enjoy. I'm just going to keep putting myself out there and hope that maybe one of these men with my health issues and claws and no longer able to be the runner or that I still still dream of being that they'll um, they'll embrace me regardless.
2: So that's Katrina's story, and there is another post on lovebitesradio.com today that has a little bit more of her background and her experience. Katrina is a writer, and so there is a bio up there for her and links to her work as well. Now last week, we covered this idea of self-identity, so I want to focus for a second on the section where she speaks about not being sure if her condition was psychological versus physiological while she waited for a diagnosis. Because this is a very big problem for a lot of people with chronic illness, and it is one of the very hard things for us to both understand about our own bodies and then express to romantic relationships, especially in the early stages. It's very hard when nobody can just tell you this is what you have to understand what is happening with your body and what is legitimate for you. So I want to send you to the TED Radio Hour podcast. It's hosted by Guy Raz, and it runs on WNYC and NPR. His Getting Better episode is one of the best collections of stories about chronic illness that I've ever heard. It really blew me away. So one of the guests on the show does speak about her experience, uh, Jennifer Bray, her experience with myalgic encephalitis. Dorothy Roberts hits on race and medicine. Paula Johnson talks about sexism and medicine. And then Elliot Crane, he's a pediatric anesthesiologist he talks about the idea of when pain from an illness or a surgery goes chronic afterwards. He says that 5 to 10% of people who have a surgery or an illness, they experience pain afterwards that just doesn't go away. He's not completely sure why this happens, but he says, and I quote, I suspect in the end, maybe in a decade, we'll have identified some sort of gene that gets turned on or turned off and allows pain to become chronicified." And when Guy asks him if people in this situation ever have the reality of their pain questioned, he says, the pain is often attributed to a psychiatric or psychological condition. And I must say that it's especially the case that's attributed to a mental disorder if the patient is a woman and the physician is a man. So it's not just Katrina who worries about these things and who has friends and loved ones question her reality. It happens with doctors. It happens with family members because we live in a world where we just don't know everything we need to know. Getting Better, that episode is also on Love Bites Radio and I'm going to tweet it right now. If you missed our episode last week, you can find it, of course, at heritageradionetwork.org and on our feeds at iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you are on any of those platforms, we would love for you to review our show. Reviews are the best way for us to go up in those search engines and have people find us and let us know that we are worth listening to. And if you are on heritageradionetwork.org listening to us, if you can throw a couple dollars Heritage Radio Network's way, we are a nonprofit member-supported station, and our very mighty team of engineers and producers make it so easy for our 30-plus hosts to come in every week and run our live shows. After the break, we are back with Kirsten Schultz of chronicsex.org addressing something that we brought up in our show last week. Sit back, hear some words from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. So for the rest of the show, I want to address a few questions that have come up, both from our episode last week with Jessica and Rachel, and then also from insight I've gleaned from readers who have reached out to me after having found my cosmopolitan essays, how I learned to date with a chronic illness, and I can't have children, but I don't want to anyway. I asked Kirsten Schultz to join this episode for some insight. She is a genderqueer writer and sexuality educator based in Wisconsin and the founder of Chronic Sex Chat and ChronicSex.org. And I've asked her for some help with how we can foster intimacy when we can't have sex because of illness, as we discussed a little bit last week. And then as you're going to hear also how we can have a little bit more confidence in even bringing up sex and sexuality within our chronic illness community, as it seems to be one of the topics that we're a little bit more squeamish about inviting into conversation or even somewhat unsure about how to bring up with our own partners, no matter the state of our relationship. So we're going to hear from Kirsten for a little bit. And then at the end of the show, I'm going to address one more question that came into me recently. So here's Kirsten Schultz.
3: I think the first thing is communication, right? Communication is so hard in any relationship, but when chronic pain, chronic illness, any sort of disability enters into things, kind of as a third wheel, it really complicates things more. And so I think going on a journey, whether it's by ourselves or with our partners, to discover our communication styles, you know, any potential, if we deal with post-traumatic stress, I do... Um, you know, discovering any potential triggers so that we can communicate that to each other to create you know just a very safe environment when you're with that person or people. Do you I have think. any advice for how to create that safe space? Yeah, so there's a couple different things you can do. There's the love languages. this whole concept of love languages is that there are different ways that people respond to affection or prefer to receive affection. And also, prefer to give affection. And so, my partner and I, he is very much a gift giver. If I'm having a rough day and I can't leave the house, he'll stop and get gas and get me, like, a peanut butter cup. And then he'll bring it home and be like, look, I got you this peanut butter cup because I know you're having a rough day. And that's this genuine, endearing type of intimacy that is not sexual, it is not physical, it is just here. I know you're having a rough day. Let me give you this. I prefer to give a lot of adoration. And so I will tell people, oh, you're doing a great job. Or, you know, I really liked the other day when we were at the zoo and you decided we needed to sit down because you noticed I was having a rough time walking. For people who have a problem with intercourse itself or just don't have the energy to, or the sex drive even. I think for a lot of people when they're going through illness, you know our hormones are changing and we don't have the energy or we don't even have the, the instinct to want to connect physically. What are some ways that you would say to sort of bridge the divide between the person who is ill and isn't feeling that but to give a little bit of something to the partner who is looking for that? So it's definitely important to remember like intimacy and even sex is more than just penetrative sex. It could be, you know, just touching or heavy petting. Things like that can be very fulfilling. But other things that can be very helpful, you know, non-sexual touching. Um, When I'm having a very bad pain day, you know, my husband will come in and he will snuggle with me. He will rub my back and my neck, which are really, you know, rough spaces for me. And that does occasionally lead to more sexual touching or intercourse. And that's fine and it's wonderful. Other times, it's just very comforting for me because I know that he is seeing I'm hurting and he wants to do something to help. And it's comforting for him because he feels like he is helping. And, and you know, it's, it's a similar thing with the communication styles. Not everybody has the same intimacy kind of styles. Having just very deep conversations can be very intimate, whether you're snuggling or sitting across from each other or whatever. Netflix and, like, actually snuggling, not Netflix and chill, like, actually just snuggling can be very beneficial. Anything that helps to strengthen a bond you have, anything that helps to bring quality time into things. And then, of course, I think often we forget about sexually assistive devices And there are plenty of toys out there, no matter what your gender identity or sexual orientation or, you know, whatever you like. There are plenty of toys out there that can help with those things. For people who want to try different things with sex and sexuality, there are a ton of companies out there like Liberator or Intimate Writer that make assistive devices specifically for angles or If you have a disability, Intimate Rider is very good at um, specifically like people with back issues or spinal cord injuries. So there's definitely a lot of companies out there that are very into helping to provide the means for us to be able to have sexual lives despite limitations. A reader recently reached out to me when she discovered that she has Lyme disease, that it can possibly be, depending on the studies that you read, transmitted sexually or through children and how that just completely petrified her as far as the idea of having a relationship or having children. But within the Lyme disease communities that she was a part of online, she did not find other women who readily wanted to speak to her about this or share advice or experience. Why do you think we have a little reluctance to discuss our sexual desire or lack thereof or sexuality? And what would you say to encourage people who might want to bring this up in conversation either with their partners or just with others in their community to give them a little boost of confidence to do so? It's hard, right? I think part of that is being vulnerable, and we do not like to be vulnerable. If you think about, as an example, we have guinea pigs. They're very adorable. I love them. They snuggle. It's great. Guinea pigs, when they're hurt, they try to hide it as much as they can. They will literally hide or they will compensate or do whatever it is so that other people don't know. Because, you know, in the animal world, that's how you get picked off. (laughs) And I think a lot of us instinctually have taken that in. Even for me, I pride myself on being vulnerable, and it's very hard. As far as working to being more vulnerable, being more open about these kind of emotional, not necessarily like inherently medical parts of our illness, I think the biggest thing is connecting with other people. People that I talk to have conditions all across the board from having survived breast cancer to dealing with type 1 diabetes to dozens upon dozens of diagnoses like yours truly. And it's one of those things where these emotional parts of our illnesses, these things that affect our emotional and sexual lives, don't just stay within one diagnosis code. And as we break down kind of those illness community barriers, it becomes easier to talk about some of these, you know, more emotional aspects of our diseases. So I think that connecting with other people is really the biggest thing, along with kind of that vulnerability aspect, being willing to be vulnerable, even though it may, you know, have a negative effect on some part of our life. Um, Is there anything else that you want to sort of say on this subject that you think people should sort of know before I send them over to chronic sex? Um, There's this really great group on Facebook called Mamas, M-A-M-A-S, Facing Forward. And it is run by one of my favorite people in the whole world, Mariah Leach. And she has started this group specifically for people who, are moms, want-to-be moms, or trying to conceive, or just have conceiving slash pregnancy-related questions. It's a group that is, you know, kind of all across the board as, as far as illness types go. And for people who have questions about um, heredity and illness or potential genetic effects of medications or things like that, it's a very great resource. It is a closed Facebook group, so you do have to, you know, ask to join But it's one of the most forward-thinking Facebook groups as far as pregnancy or the idea of just even thinking about conceiving an illness goes. So I definitely suggest people check that out too.
2: So thank you to Kirsten for joining us. You can find out more about her work at the intersection of sex, sexuality, and chronic illness at chronicsex.org. Now, before we close out this two-part show on breakups because of chronic illness, I want to bring up one final question that was recently posed to me by a reader. Kevin in Arizona asked, Do you ever think or feel like you are shortchanging someone that's in a relationship with you? Like they may be out doing things they want to enjoy with a partner, but feel limited because of your limitations. Now, there are men out there who are highly athletic. They want to go on scuba diving trips and they want to go rock climbing And that is all great, that is very fair. Personally, I don't date those kind of men because I know that I can't do those things. So I generally just don't go into situations where my lifestyle is immediately going to put us into different circles. But outside of that idea, here's where I sit regarding my sense of value against someone else's physical health. Now I first got sick in 1993 when I was in middle school And as early as high school, I started addressing the emotional and intellectual aspects of having a chronic illness. So I've had a lot of time to work on this. I just want to sort of proceed this idea with that. But I want to say that it takes work for me, that I work very actively on my mental state of health and on my emotional state of health and on my confidence and my self-worth, despite the fact that I have an illness, no matter the state of my illness at that time, because sometimes I can't do a lot. There have been periods where I have not been contributing through a job. There have been times when I have not been dating. But there are times when I can work, and when I can work, I do. When I can date, I do. I push myself a little bit to do so, even when I'm not fully healthy, because I do believe that there is always something that can be done, if not for others, at least for ourselves. One thing that Katrina and I discuss is the power of presence. Active presence is a gift in a world where we want to do, do, do. Then with technology, there is so much work that can be done that a lot of us do from home. If a resource does not exist that you feel should, like how Kirsten founded Chronic Sex so that there was a community to discuss sex and sexuality with chronic illness, you can create it. Being able to go running or skiing, or on a round-the-world trip with someone doesn't automatically make them an amazing partner. And it's just like having an illness doesn't make someone immediately compassionate, or patient, or zen. We have to work on goodness. We have to work on resilience. We have to work on hustle. And we have to work on it if we are extremely healthy, and we have to work on it if we are sick. Yes, having a chronic illness sucks. Now, I get low sometimes because it is hard to be sick. One reader asked me recently if I've ever contemplated suicide. And yes, I have, because being sick can be so hard and so lonely, and you can feel very, very powerless to change it. But at my heart, I don't believe that I'm a powerless person. And so once I get out of that immediately dark moment, I pick myself up. I always pick myself up and I remind myself what I can do. I can still work on me. That's the value I bring to a relationship. I bring resilience and I bring hustle and I bring fortitude and I bring ingenuity and I bring all of these things because I've worked on them. So don't give up on love, please. Don't think that you're lesser than because of your illness. Yes, there are practical things that we cannot do. But we have time, and we have solitude, and there is a lot of work that we can do to bring things of value to relationships. Please don't shortchange yourself and your value because of your physical limitations. Thank you so much for listening to these episodes. If you want to reach out and give us your opinion about anything you've heard, our email is lovebites at heritageradionetwork.org. Next week, we are wrapping up this series on endings with a completely non-illness-related theme. We're speaking with Chef Chris Jekyll about closing a restaurant in New York City when you don't want to close your restaurant in New York City. Until then, you can find all of our shows here at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes and Stitcher. We are heading out of the show not with our theme song, Give Love, by Josh Dion, but with another tune from Robbie Gill and the band. So enjoy, and we will be back at the same time next week here at Heritage. Radio
0: Network. Sweet Though it hurts, I know it's true. I never did deserve you in the end. So, Kathy, promise me, well,
1: you find a good man, you won't look back and you'll start over again. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please, join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.
0: I hope you can forgive me and remember that it's who I adore.